This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Om C. Parkin about his upcoming early October West Coast U.S. visit and his recent book, Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path, published by Gateway Books and Tapes. Omsi Parkin is a renowned European wisdom teacher and the founder of the mystery school Anielions and Gutzaunstorf, a modern monastery. His books include The Birth of the Lion and The Digital Age, A Critical View from a Wisdom Perspective. Om embodies in his work the link between Eastern non-duality and Christian mysticism of depth psychology and philosophy beyond the limits of religion and confessions. He often references the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, which has been revived in the 20th century by Sri Ramana Maharshi, Sri H.W.L. Punja, the American Gangaji, and others. Om acts in the tradition of these teachers and by being rooted in early Christian teaching. His work in the tradition of silence can be described by three functions, teacher of wisdom, healer of the soul, seer of the heart. He has been supporting people to find their true nature for more than 30 years and founded the modern satsang movement in Europe. Ohm will be touring the west coast of the U.S. in October. Public and semi-public events include a book reading at Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California on October 8th at 7 p.m., a private darshan at Tayu Meditation Center in Sebastopol, California on October 9th at 3 p.m., a gathering at the Ojai Retreat Center on October 13th, and a visit to Triveni Ashram in Paulden, Arizona. Om C. Parkin, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Good evening. It's great to have you back, and um, there is, of course, an occasion that uh, um, will be coming up, that is your uh, imminent trip to the United States, to the Western uh, U.S. And so you'll be um, speaking, among other places, at uh, Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol and in our Taiyu Meditation Hall. And um, and I believe also in Ojai and in Arizona at our friends at um, the home community. There may be other other occasions, but um, I wanted to start off by asking. Um, well, I'll, first, I'll mention that this this trip of yours was going to happen, and then the pandemic provided sufficient obstacles that it has had to wait until now. So you've been looking forward to that uh, visit um, for a few years now. What was the um, reason and occasion for your decision to come to the to the u.s well <clears throat> i think as you know i think last time we talked a little about about the 
biography of Ohm. I have been living in the States for one and a half years with interruptions in 1993 and 1994. I, I, I didn't know at the time whether I was going to live in the States. I have just packed up everything, put the stuff that, that I didn't sell in a container and just came to the States without knowing anything. But then uh, it seemed it was very clear that there was a call back. So then, since then, I never came back to the States. There was no call. And, um, well, now there is a call for the first time. So what can I do? You know, I just, I just follow the call. <laughs> it's, it's not an external call. It's an internal call. And um, if you wish, there is a... One uh, practical reason, of course, which is uh, my last. Well, it's it's not the last book. It's it's one. It's 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 a main main book of mine, the Intelligence of Awakening, which has been published in the states a few years ago. But as you know, you can't just publish a book and then never show up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, um, look what's going on there. And so I, it was clear to me that I have to go if I decide that this book is going to be published in the States and I would just want to come over and see what's happening. Thank you. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No. But, you know, honestly, it's it's more like a, it's a private uh, trip, more or less, you know. Um, I mean, there are like 10, I think 10 of my students coming with me. Mm -hmm. And there's also a filmmaker, a professional filmmaker, because we are, there will be a, a film produced. So he's also joining the group huh. and he's with us. And we don't know specifically what's going to happen over there. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting, as you describe, uh, having an inner call, that that in itself is a kind of demonstration that we don't have to have logical reasons for taking action if we're responding to something deep within ourselves. And I'm so the sense that you're describing is that you don't have a, you don't have an expectation of a, a, an outcome as much as you have a sense that something is asking you to move or to take this action. No, the inner call. I mean, that's the way um, everything functions in, in real life. Uh, the inner call is just happening. And then, there is no choice to go or not to go. Um, I'm not enthusiastic about coming, um, but there is also no, you know, no dislike or anything. So I have absolutely no idea what's, what's going to happen. Um, well, as you know, since 1994, I mean, many, 
in the in the collective American mind many uh, uncomfortable things have happened. But this is not my issue, you know. I I, I felt very welcome when I was in the states, and uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think the the reflection that I was um, um, had on your description of an inner call is that for many people, the ordinary state of a identification with their personality is such that we may receive these calls or have these uh, intuitions about what to do but we very quickly override them with a thought or an idea, which may be born out of fear or expectation or um, uh, rejection. And so it's, it's an interesting thing to say that we have a call. We feel something affirmative within ourselves, but we don't have, we don't override it with a idea about what should be the case. This is true. Um, this is also something uh, I'm going to talk about when I when I'm with you in the states because um, I think you have received right some essays of the, the new tr- tr- trilogy of the books. Can you say that in English? Trilogy? Yes, the trilogy is right. Yes, yes, um, which is about these three. You you didn't use this term, but it's about three overlayers of the set of mind, three movements which over, which cloud uh, the, the possibility to receive inner calls. So in the states, many of these calls are clouded by concepts of uh, having success you know what with what you do and like uh, successful uh, trip i have no concept about having a successful uh trip with or selling many books uh in the states i'm not it doesn't doesn't really matter i mean i i'm happy you know if if <laughs> if i some of these books are sold but finally i don't care so I'm quite sure we're going to have a good, uh, good, there's going to be good meetings with some interested people. And that's more than enough to make a success. This is what I, what I'm hearing you say, because you, you don't, um, as you, as you, as you point out, I think a lot of people define success in materialistic terms. And that's not what I'm hearing you say. Yes, but but even you know the the concept of, of success is then being kind of refined on the spiritual path and in, in the minds of people, then they still uh, <clears throat> follow the, the the idea of success by fulfillment of uh, non materialistic uh, goals, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the emotional or mental world. So there is a lack of equanimity. That makes sense. Yeah, you've written about that. uh, uh, And it's an interesting question about the the nature of practice. 
this this comes up in I think a lot of the neo Advaita Vedanta material that there's a paradox because on the one hand to practice to have a spiritual aim is I think as you have said a rejection of the present it's a grasping for a future state that isn't present whereas I think you've said that enlightenment is now enlightenment is something that is a present abiding state or condition of our true being so to grasp for something now in the future is to move away from what is at the same time in spiritual practice there is a necessity to somehow have an orientation or or to make a choice to uh have a relationship with what is happening now and even that and that choice represents a a doing of some sort so on the on the one hand there's no doing that can get you to the moment and at the same time uh we have to do something in order to be there well not doing is not the same as non-doing because then the concept of non-doing on this spiritual path is is a paradoxical concept that cannot be grasped by the mind so i quoted uh in a different sometimes i quote another master who who <clears throat> said that um no who said this you know concerning the paradoxical uh aura of 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 this spiritual path he said know that there is nothing that you can do to reach the aim of enlightenment and at the same time do your practice as if you didn't know of this <laughs> yeah that is a concise uh, summary yes it is <laughs> yeah. so of course many people you mentioned this um, concept of neo vedanta I, i never use this term because i don't i dislike uh, this concept i don't really believe that there is anything like neo vedanta in reality but it, however i know what you mean um Maybe Neo-Vedanta is just a concept for the dilution of, of, of the teaching of Vedanta. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? Yes, that many people came back from, from India and during this big satsang wave, you know, <clears throat> between 1995 and 2005 or something like this. Um. And they didn't, they, they didn't understand. I mean, the mind understood the concept of non-doing. So they believe that every inner practice is, is useless, that they were already enlightened. And if they then just, you know, they, they have just, they came back with the concept of, of not doing. And they didn't realize that the concept of not doing is not the same as the non-doing. Mm. 
Yeah, that that I appreciate that. That's a precise way of putting it. And I would I I certainly agree with your characterization that uh the idea of not doing as a as it were a practice is is incomplete. But non doing is an interesting question. I, I wonder if you could speak more about that. Uh uh the I think the analogy that um, I've heard that helps me with this is that uh, there's the idea of like holding on to a ball with your hand and you're, I'm holding on very tightly and I'm holding on so tightly that I've forgotten that I'm holding on tightly. So non-doing is about letting releasing and so there, so there's a doing that I've forgotten that I'm doing and non-doing is the release of the relaxation of that doing. And f- for me, that has the flavor of what it means to disidentify with a sense of myself or a personality sense of myself that may be tightly held. Mm. Non-doing is beyond holding or releasing. Because you see, the concept of releasing is still linked to the concept of doing. Mm-hmm. So releasing, the concept of releasing could <clears throat> temporarily serve uh, the inner state of people. Because if they feel very... <clears throat> self-contracted is is very often part of the inner uh, narrowness. So the concept to release, of releasing might, you know, might, how can you say this, widen the space and the self-contraction could, could be diminished. But it's still a concept that is that is in polarity to uh, holding. So it's it's still a concept of mind, the, the releasing. You know, it's it's not it's not what what <clears throat> the teachings call non doing. Thank you. That's 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 clearly stated. Um, with your permission, I'd like to go to. Um, uh, ask you about the book that you'll be speaking about in America that you mentioned earlier, the Intelli- the intelligence of awakening. And I'm wondering um, if you could describe to our listeners what what you uh, what the book offers. It's a it's a teaching book on the inner path and the. The, the, the pillars um, of the inner path. I mean, um, <clears throat> it's not complete because a <laughs> second uh, volume should come, but I have no time to write it at the moment. Um, it's not complete, but I, I would say the major pillars of the path of... Uh, freedom of the human being are being explained. Uh, This is the concept of the mind, 
what is a mind? It's the concept of suffering. Uh, what is suffering? It's not what people understand. And, and the third, the concept of the inner path itself and the teachings of the inner path. So these are the three, these are three very major pillars that have to be transmitted in the, in the teaching. The understanding of the mind, meaning finally then the trans, <clears throat> transformation of what, what we call the ego mind, then the transformation of the, the suffering and understanding the paradoxical um, not understanding, but following, let's say following, you know, the paradoxical nature of the inner teachings. Thank you. So it's, I understand. It's not a book that it's not a book that you can read. It's a book to study. You know, it's a study book. Ah, well, that's, that makes it that um, <clears throat> that's an important distinction from, from the way people relate to most books, most reading materials, it seems to me. And and that means that it needs to be approached differently to um, be of use for people, right? Yeah, it cannot be approached. You know, the, our times in the digital age, the, the they they dilute the what shall I say the approach to let's say profound deeper, profound issues. So, you know, when you can see everything, you, you believe you can grasp deeper philosophical issues just through images in YouTube. Uh, this, this, is, this is definitely misunderstanding. And also, reading a book, as you say, is the next, might be a next step. But studying material, inner studies, is, is, is a higher challenge for, for the mind to, you know, and really dive into something and to enhance the understanding. Possibly you can just have several minutes to, to just read, you know, a certain passage and you don't the mind doesn't understand, so you need time to di to to digest, to you know, to not read just mentally, but to really have an integral understanding. So this is studying. You know, studying is something something different, and most people don't want to study, and they believe that studying is just a mental concept because they they have understood studying you know in the in the, in the university but studying on the inner path is something else I, i've heard the term contemplation as using something different or 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 george gurdjieff uses the term con state as something different than the intellectual idea of studying Mm -hmm. uh, a, a question I have 
you, you've written on this subject in the past on the digital age, and you've offered a, a critical interpretation based off of uh, the wisdom traditions on what, what is happening in the digitization of media. And I'm interested in, you know, in this, I think we've hit upon that topic and that there's a, a difference in creating a space for a deeper contemplation of, of a teaching versus being thrown a bunch of images on YouTube or looking at a fancy website that presents some uh, attractive pictures. So I'm interested in how you see the prospects of uh, transmission of spiritual teaching in the face of the digitization of communication today. Yeah, I'm just thinking um, which book is it? There, I think yeah, it's it's a book which is not translated in English. Uh, there is ah yes, now I know which one it is. <laughs> uh, it's the what's the English term? Awakening of the elephant or something? Kathleen, mm. um, you know it? No. No. Anyway, it's it's a it's a it's a relatively new book, and there I decided to put an appendix in this book. It's about the question: Can the digital age, uh, or, or can spiritual teachings, be transmitted digitally? You know, well, this is the, the yes. <clears throat> this is this is the the <clears throat> the question, and the simple answer is no. But then, of course, there follow like 40 pages <laughs> describing the no. <laughs> um, no, I, I also, you know, give darshans uh, digitally now. Um, it's not that I have a complete and total dislike to uh, digital possibilities, but um, the transmission, the inner transmission, uh, in guru yoga is is the same today as it was 100 years ago and it as it was 1000 years ago it it is the same and it's always going to be the same um it needs every aspect you cannot renounce nothing you need every aspect of uh <clears throat> Receptivity, intelligence, uh, every realm in which this human being is living, everything has to be present. You need complete and total presence. And um, this includes, as I say, every realm. So only, finally, <coughs> only the, the direct meeting is total and complete. Hmm. So I've, <clears throat> I've often heard the phrase, which I like, uh, uh, spiritual transmission is heart to heart. But, but that sounds like it's restrict that the that phrase phraseology sounds as if it's restricting things to the emotional realm. And, hmm. and, and I don't think that's 
the the teaching the teaching teachers that I've heard say this, I don't think they mean to narrow it. Rather, this um, I, I really like the way you you just put this that people have to bring everything of their experience and reject nothing of their experience. That's a, um, I think it's a hard one because for, for so many people, because they have thought throughout their life lives that, um, picking and choosing is the way. Um, one of my favorite, um, spiritual texts is the, uh, Shin Shin Ming by the third Zen patriarch that goes on and on about the fact that picking and choosing is the obstacle or an obstacle. And it's, I think that's resonating with what you were just saying. Does that sound right to you? Well, picking and choosing is connected to the concept of uh, preferences and dislikes. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a concept I've just been working with in, in school with my students, uh, trying to uh, view that, that the whole world of the mind is, is, is um, dominated by, by preferences and dislikes. So, um, yes, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, do you see this this the world of preferences and dislikes is is then also dri- driven by subconscious uh, powers like also the dis dis virtues what you call it the what's just forgetting the name what's the opposite of of virtues vice vice vices vices yes that's correct vices so. Inertia is 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 uh, the the major vice of the the human mind, and of course the digital um, <clears throat> communication and uh, dig- digital transmission can easily, very easily, be um, dominated by inertia kinds of inertia because you know it it it, it can create a certain safe space where you feel where you where the mind stays in its comfort zone and the this this absolute direct confrontation with the the, the fire is is not in the same high temperature so this these are all you know consequences of of the, the inner working of inertia and that's as i say that's that's by digital communication this inertia is definitely latently pushed. I, I really like that, your, your use of inertia as, um, as a vice that is particularly, particularly easy to fall into with the way that people interact with the screens that, that transmit the digital uh, images, uh, words, and information. I think that's, that, that's, um, that's that's spot on, and um, I think um, 
I will be repeating that to, to other people because I really like that formulation. So thank you for that. There, there's another aspect of the, of related to what we were talking about of the having to be fully present for trans, transformation in a spiritual sense with a, with a teacher, with a source. I find even with at a much lower scale that the, there's a different, a qualitative difference in working with people through zoom or, uh, and actually being physically present. I find that in the business world where due to COVID due to COVID, I had relationships with people for two years that I had never met physically, but when I met them physically and it was in a room with them, there's a subtle exchange, which the mind doesn't actually grasp, but it's a very real uh, exchange that is part of a more total way in which we are able to be together. And by analogy, I see that same process with, as you, as you were describing that I understand the same process that being, having a darshan on uh, zoom is good but not necessarily complete that the that as you i i like the way you express it you have to bring the whole of your being to the moment to the engagement for the possibilities to be fully realized you know in the inner school i also work with uh, uh teachings of the fourth way of gurdjieff mm-hmm. and of course the the, the fourth way is a transformation of the first three ways or paths. And these three paths, they are linked to the three brains of, of human beings. So, of course, the digital uh, <clears throat> communication and the digital the meeting is not a complete meeting within the first three paths, you see. So if the first three paths are not complete, the fourth path cannot happen anyway. So uh, it it needs uh, the physical presence because the physical presence is not purely physical. The physical presence is is the, 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 the base for a uh, what I call the great circle. The great circle is the circle of Shakti, which is, you know, constantly every single moment um, turning like a great circle through the three realm, realms of, of the existence of, of, of people. The first brain, the second brain, the third brain. So if this circle is complete and integral, you know, the transformation into the fourth, what I call the fourth birth can happen. So you need simply everything, everything existing has to be part of the great circle. You know, if something is limited, uh, the circle will not be complete and the transformation process is unable to happen. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I'm, and I'm interested in your findings about 
what happens if someone does meet in person, if they do have the that complete uh, connection, subsequently or later on, the quality of even a digital or a Zoom interface is very different because there is that 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 moment of that or that deeper connectivity. So, for instance, I've, I've found again using the example on a lower scale, I found that if I've had if I've met with someone physically, there's a d- different quality in the communications uh, uh, remotely thereafter because there's this kind of linkage that our bodies have established, and so. It has a different quality than the quality of a relationship where there's never been that physical linkage. I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, when we're now talking about it on a, on a human level, and we're not talking about a transmission on the level of the student-teacher relationship on the spiritual path, but even on the human uh, level, I can exactly uh, confirm from my own experience, what you're saying, it seems as if there is a, like a memory is, you know, a, a memory, <clears throat> which then uh, in, in the cells, but I'm not talking about the physical cells. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then when you talk to someone, when I talk to uh, a student digitally, but the student is more or less regularly showing up physically, then this is a completely different situation. You know, sometimes I met people digitally for the first time, uh, never met them in real. <laughs> um, and it's a completely different situation. You know, it's, it's if, as if some uh, informations, subtle informations beyond words are not completely uh, exchanged. So uh, the the uh, metaphor that's coming into my head for what you're describing is that um, when we meet physically in in our bodies together in a space, it's as if there's the possibility of a veil being lifted, to use a Sufi um, metaphor. But on the screen, it's very difficult absent that physical meeting to for someone used to looking at information through a screen to realize that there's another potential dimension to connection mm. just let me just look up the word you know um i have my dictionary here with me you know What kind of a different, difficult word? Ah, yes. Well, in 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 the book of uh, you know intelligence of awakening, mm-hmm. I also talked about the the concept of um, evolution and involution, and how the uh, <clears throat> consciousness and human being. So, is 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 um <clears throat> moving through different stages of evolution and involution so you see if the evolution is integral then 
let's make it trying let me try to make it simple if if the evolution is integral then everything from the lower stages is being uh, integrated in the process of evolution and is taking part and can serve as an ingredient for the final transformation so what we're talking about in the digital age is <clears throat> a kind of uh can you say this is it it says here in the dictionary uncoupling mm -hmm. can you say that yes yeah. un un uncoupling of higher states because the digital age addresses very much the mental realm of people but you see this 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 subtle or uh obvious cut uh through the the realm of the physical being and the realm of 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 the mind this is an old very old trauma going back to uh, greek uh philosophers and philosophy and 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 it's 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 a it's a trauma of the west um well i guess it's finally a trauma of mankind but i'm talking about the western mind mm -hmm. and so uh there is a collective tendency that these two realms don't uh come together but they tend to drift uh away and to uncouple yeah. so digitalization is is very often a tendency of uh, of an uncoupled mental realm not completely uh indulged in can you say that in in, in the physical realm right so, yeah. yeah i would say so, yeah connected to or, or engaged with engaged with is yeah disconnected disconnected yes. right right in, in in an inner state so this disconnection um yeah is, is a great maybe the great inner polarity or duality of the western mind Yeah, that that's very interesting because it seems so like so much of our western history of philosophy mind technology and even uh many forms of religious expression have have been a rejection of the body and a a in a sense a hatred of the body which is very different from what we see in indigenous cultures for instance where there's a much deeper integration of the body and the integration with the presence on the earth as an integral part of one's uh, spiritual experience. Well, we have on the other side, I mean, just to complete the, the context, on the other side, we have a, a counter movement, of course, and in the modern age called bodyism. <laughs> Do you know this term? I don't, but I think I understand what you mean by it. Well, I, I've, I've I've read this term with Ken Wilber. He used he ah, used the term bodyism. Okay. So, I mean, you know, like every second young man going to the gym, um, this kind of thing. Um, but you know, this counter movement is, is not is not a real worshiping. Is not a true worshiping of of the physical realm because we have to see these these 
mental movements in a more broad sense, not only linked to, not even just linked to people, but we see that, I mean, this whole ecological, you know, disaster, uh, this is also the body, you know, it's the body mm -hmm. of the earth. And uh, this is the same, exactly the same uh, happening, you know, what I call the uncoupling Of, of the mental realm and not being uh, <clears throat> based anymore, not being based in nature, you know, not being based in nature because nature is just a, a different term. When we talk about physical people, nature is just a different term for the body of the human being. It means exactly the same. But I think you're, you're um, right to point out that, um, in fact, people separate themselves mentally from that. And that's, a, that's a, as you say, a habit of uh, the Western mindset that has had these terrible consequences mm. for, the, for the bodies of, of animals, the bodies of uh, plants and the bodies more generally of the earth itself. So um, uh, switching gears for a moment, um, um, I was reading some of the uh, material that uh, uh, was sent to us uh, to advertise a talk in our bookstore. And I was reminded, as we, I believe, spoke about in our previous conversation on this podcast, that you have a background in Christian mysticism or, or that is a, that is a, um, uh, something that informs your work. And, and, um, and I was reminded of that as you were speaking earlier about the fourth way, because of course, Mr. Gurdjieff sometimes characterized the fourth way as esoteric Christianity so I wonder if you have anything that you might uh, uh, say to our listeners about this um, idea of esoteric Christianity in your work. Well, first I have to say, you know, it's a bit exaggerated to say that I have a background in Christian mysticism. I mean, I... My background is, is, is Indian, but um, coming from the Advaita teachings. But of course, you know, I, I realized at one point that I'm teaching in the West, teaching to Christian people, and that, you know, my form itself is, is Christian. It, it's not a choice And it doesn't matter whether you are an atheist or not, you're Christian in any way. So realizing this, there was the natural um, inner drive to go back to the, you know, the Gnostic beginnings of Christianity, uh, moving back internally to the source like 2000 years you know this is something that is possible not not simply by the mind but it's an inner 
movement to the profound source of of the teaching. So this, what you call esoteric uh, Christianity, this is not exclusively uh, Christian. I mean, every religion has an esoteric and an exoteric uh, teaching. And the esoteric esoteric teachings of religions are just for very few people, while the exoteric teachings are for the masses of the people. So, um, if you come from the inner path, no matter in which context of religion it's happening, there is a natural interest, you know, for the esoteric, any esoteric religion, because they're all coming from the same source and the teaching is the same. So it was just simply obvious that, that I had to deal with, the, you know, esoteric Christianity because there was, there is Christian blood in every Western form, you know, so there is not a choice. It's a natural interest, you know. So related to that, um, I'm reminded in, in some forms of modern Christianity, there's a return to a, a meditation form or a con- contemplation. One, one, one term for it is centering prayer, but the aspect or the emphasis is on coming to an interior silence. And I know that silence is a major um, emphasis or feature or characteristic of the, the work you and your community do. So I'm interested in uh, briefly just describing the, the centrality of silence as in, in I, I, I hesitate to say practice, but uh, as a as a a place of um, being present to reality. Yes. What is the question? <laughs> the, the question. I think the question is I, the way I would put the question is: um, Is there? There's multiple ways of approaching silence. There's silence as an end of itself. And in some forms of uh, silence meditation, there is the silence of waiting for something to happen. And I'm interested if that distinction is meaningful to you or or if you could elaborate on um, the role that silence plays in your uh, teaching and your community. I'm sometimes lacking the the very very sharp understanding of of different terms in the English language, but as far as I understand it, you see, uh, silence is not necessarily the same as stillness, but in the English language, sometimes we use the term silence, but truly we mean stillness. So there is stillness that is not necessarily silent 
and then there is a silence which is not necessarily still. But this 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 is coming very, <laughs> you know, very sharp. And maybe we would need more time to, or you would have to tell me also something about your understanding of these terms. Um, <clears throat> but it is true that the silent mind. So this is a, a deep, profound um, inner. It's the practice, and it's also the aim of the practice. Mm. And the silent mind is the same in esoteric Christian Christianity or in Buddhism or in Zen Buddhism or in the Advaita teaching. Silence is the key, you see. Um, the practices are not practices to enhance silence. They are just practices to, <clears throat> how shall I say, to, to get, get, get rid of the, <clears throat> the noise, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, noise can manifest, inner noise can manifest even as silence. And this is a very tricky mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I, th I think the you you were very helpful there. The distinction of silence and stillness is actually, I think, a useful one in the English language. Mm. If I were to make an analogy in how I understand what you're saying, I would say stillness is uh, the uh, is to non doing as silence is to not doing. I understand. Yes, and so that, so I mean we're, we're constructing the language as we speak here, but I think uh, that that distinction helps helps inform me in terms of where my question was coming from. So I appreciate that. There is some sometimes just a lack of sharpness in in how the way we use words. So sometimes even me, I'm saying, you know, a silent mind. Although this is not completely what I mean. Uh, but it's also an adaption to the way people use this term. It's, it's an important understanding, definitely, that the mind can even hide in silence. You see, so the practice of meditation is, has, is, uh, can be ambiguous. Am ambiguous? No. Ambiguous, yes. Mm -hmm. Ambi ambiguous. Ambiguous, yes. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, because I have seen people, you know, I have seen people sitting down to meditate, not realizing that this intentional doing of the mind itself was uh, a kind of suppression of latent thoughts in the mind, which were then driven to subconsciousness. Uh, And then in the perception, what remains is silence, but it's not silent. I mean, it's not still. So this is a very, very important teaching for, from, for meditators. That's, I think that's, uh, that's true. I've sometimes heard the distinction of inner silence and outer silence. And I think often people think that, If you go to a place where no one's talking, then that's 
outer silence. But I think you could link those two um, terms in the in just the way you've just done um, to make to make the distinction that you've just made. I in explaining to students how this distinction is made, I I, I talked about the following situation. I might enter a room, uh, a meditation hall, you know, and th this is what is happening very often here. And there are like 50 or more students sitting there meditating. So the room is silent anyway. But sometimes what happens is that I'm coming into this darshan hall and it's very uncomfortable for me because it's extremely noisy in the room. Although nobody is saying the word, but there's an extreme noise of what I call mental pollution. And then in other moments, you know, just a different day or time, I'm entering the same hall, maybe even similar people, similar, same people. And it's a very still moment of sharing the stillness. And it's like you can just dive into this stillness. And there is a complete diving into the stillness. Looking from outwards, it's the absolute the same situation. Nobody's saying a word. I think that the way you said it earlier that um, there can be stillness without silence and there can be silence without stillness uh, really captures it for me because, for instance, in our fourth way practice of self-observation, what we call the observer awareness really embodies a kind of a stillness if it's functioning properly, it's present to the arising of thoughts and feelings and sensations. But there can be this background of stillness that's present to the arising of the contents of the mind. And so it's not silent when we're doing self-observation, but it can be still. Yes. Well, it, it, it can't be still. It is still. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. To to the degree to which the observer is functioning uh, uh, reliably, yeah, um, it's it's obvi obviously for practitioners, it's challenging not to get caught up in the noise, and and so when it is still, it uh, the observer is present. Yeah, not only not only just get caught up in the noise, but as I said, you know, when I, when I said that the mind can also hide in silence, this means that there are unarisen thoughts which pretend imitate a kind of silence mm -hmm. and the meditator or the seeming observer is not realizing that there is a subtle action subtle inner action, suppressing uh, thoughts that don't, well, can you see, can you still see me? Because yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, we, can, we, can, we can hear you fine. Okay, good. 
um, because uh, the, this subtle action uh, of latent suppression, it is a doing which will lead to a kind of silence which looks like stillness, but it's not. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes we find that uh, students approaching a practice like self-observation have the idea that if they're doing it right, they're not thinking. And I think that that idea that thinking is, sh- should be stopped uh, becomes the, one of the causes of that kind of suppression because it's possible to stop thinking with a, with a certain kind of mental action. We can stop thinking but that doesn't mean that the thoughts have gone away or it doesn't mean that we're still, it's more, it's more like pressure is building up on a surface. And when we, and the idea of self-observation is not one of stopping thinking, but simply being present in stillness to the arising of thinking. Well, you see the one who wants to stop thinking is also a thought. And a thought cannot stop thinking. So this completely uh, paradoxical situation is not a word to the one who <clears throat> has the idea that stopping thinking is meditation. Because as I say, you know, the, the one who stops thinking is also a thought, and it is absolutely impossible for a thought to stop Thinking, A thought can stop other thoughts, but if one thought stops another thought, the one who stopped the second thought will still be, will still be there, you see. So it's, this situation is as unaware to people. So I have a question about the, the, um, the co-practice together of people in, in the hall, the meditation hall that you just uh, referred to, where, where sometimes stillness is like a pool that you can dive into, and other times um, not, not the, that is not the case. And I'm wondering if, if there's a way in which people who are um, practicing together, literally in the same space um how do how does that um those different experiences of stillness or or the suppression of thoughts how do how do those radiate among the people in the room have you have you come to any conclusions about that Well, I, I try to explain a different flavor, but I have to say that, you know, this, this different flavor does not finally affect uh, the stillness within myself. Uh, it just gives a different flavor. Um, so if, let's say, there is a group of meditators and if the meditator itself, it's him, himself, herself, stays inward, then uh, it will not finally make a difference whether people surrounding him or her 
you know, are noisy or not. Mm-hmm. But but the, when the whole group, let's say there are five meditators in the room, mm-hmm. and if the whole group of these five people dive into stillness or approach a moment of stillness, then the flavor will definitely change for a moment and there will be like a an inner um, observation of a fall, an inner fall, you know, falling into depths mm-hmm. of the, the eternal depths of consciousness that can, cannot be grasped by physical eyes. So the flavor will change, but, but this, this, in this moment of sudden fall, it's like, you know, in an elevator, suddenly the whole group goes into an elevator and it's not their choice. It's just happening by this, in this moment of collective stillness. Mm-hmm. And yet, and this seems to be paradoxical, if the meditator is staying inward and is not being affected by noise on the marketplace. It's all part of inner stillness. Okay. So, um, so I guess the question I, 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 I was asking is, is um, can the inner stillness, let's say you have two people and one of them has, has descended in the elevator, to use your metaphor, and the one next to her or him does not, has not yet, does the descent of the person immediately adjacent physically adjacent does that does that support the possibility of the other person also descending or at least maybe getting a hint of descent well it's a little more complicated uh, to my understanding mm-hmm. because the you know it it all depends on the transparency of the system of, of one human being. And um, as you know, but this is opening a completely new issue. We, we have no time for this now. As you know, I mean, we also use the term of living in a bubble. So uh, it, 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 it has much to do with the permeability of the bubble you see? Mm-hmm. if if i mean let's make a very extreme example uh what in psychology we call autistic or, or what do you call it Aut- autism yeah autism. autism autism right yes so autism is a very patho- patho- pathological state pathological state but um um we, I use the term uh, in a much more broad sense for, for a certain tendency of the mind to live in a separate 
uh, closed bubble. So as you can imagine, if the bubble is, you know, closed, then there is very little yeah. exchange, okay? Mm-hmm. Very little exchange. The more transparent, transparent this bubble is, the more exchange is happening. This is very obvious. Yes. And this is also part of the answer because it's more complicated than that or more, well, you know what I mean. I, no, I do get it. And, 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 I, and I appreciate the clarity of how you, how you frame, frame the response. So thank you. So, so what, one topic I wanted to get in before we um, end is the uh, notion of darshan, because when we've talked about being physically present with a teacher and a community, the importance of that, as opposed to reading a book or watching a video, and part of your trip to the U.S. will involve darshan events uh, in in the areas that you'll be visiting. So could you talk a little bit about darshan and the unique opportunity that darshan presents in a deeper understanding of the material that we've been talking about today? Well, darshan is happening all the time. Um, formal darshan will happen when I come to the States, but it's not my intention to give, I'm not coming over to, to give darshan. It's just happening on the road. Um, there is no choice to, to not give darshan. I mean, darshan is just the, the word that that um, <clears throat> points to the seeing, because darshan actually just means seeing. It's the seeing of God. So the seeing beyond physical eyes, seeing beyond what we call the world, this seeing in silence. This is Darshan. It it includes words and it includes silence. So here, Darshan happens also. We have also musicians. They're also part of the setting, you know, with this, I think, in the States will not happen. (laughs) I don't know. Can't can't bring, you can't bring the instruments with. (laughs) Um. Maybe there will be some people with some instruments. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> not big ones, but small ones. <laughs> right. Maybe we find some Americans and they, they, they would like to contribute and play some music. I don't well, know. well, Stuart next to me here uh, is a student of the shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute. Oh. And, may, and maybe you can, you can twist his arm. <laughs> to get him to play. It's an instrument I very much appreciate. Yes. Good to know. He's lucky that his teacher is one of the great players of shakuhachi in the world, but also one of the great teachers of shakuhachi in the world. Oh, really? 
yeah. he, he teaches he teaches in a spiritual way uh as opposed to a musical way which is uh uh very very useful very very powerful so well, time is more or less over yes. Yes. Do you have a final question or was this the final well uh that was a nice note that uh, is the perhaps the penultimate the almost uh, final thing i'm 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 wondering if there's anything that you would say to our american listeners um in anticipation i mean you've already described that you have no expectation you have no agenda and and it seems to me that that is part of part of what a teacher brings which is different than what most americans at least expect of a spiritual master or teacher they usually th they usually think of um the teacher is having an agenda to i don't know convert students or or uh, promulgate the teaching but you've sort of uh in our conversation today you've sort of framed it very differently in terms of your intention as simply being a response to an inner call and i'm wondering if there's anything you would add to that or is that is that where uh where where people can uh, approach you the place that people can approach you from well you know that the truth is that there are very few people interested in the final teachings there is a, quite a large community we could call it spiritual community but there are, is a very very small number of people interested in the final teachings so you know the spiritual teaching is not interested to to reach masses of people um this is not the personal choice or personal intention or non-intention it is just simply a law of resonance which is the cosmic law and it is not my choice or our choice but you know if if the this if there is a mental intention uh to have success and to <laughs> to reach as many people as you can we talked about it at the beginning of our <clears throat> tonight talk if this just falls away well you know there's uh just the whatever happens happens but it's not necessary that more happens than that which happens <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not, I think that's, not necessary or, or, or even uh, conceivable. I think so, that's probably a perfect note to end I, on. I think so. And, 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 and let me just say that I, I really appreciate our conversation. I, to use the word you just, you just uh, did, 
um, I have resonated with what you've said uh, in our conversation today uh, um, and deeply appreciate what you what you gave us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to meeting you personally soon. Ditto. Good. Same thing from us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Om C. Parkin about his upcoming early October West Coast U.S. visit in his recent book, Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path, published by Gateway's Books and Tapes. Ohm embodies in his work the link between Eastern non-duality and Christian mysticism of depth psychology and philosophy beyond the limits of religions and confessions. Ohm will be touring the west coast of the U.S. in October. Public and semi-public events include a book reading at Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California on October 8th at 7 p.m., a private darshan at Taya Meditation Center in Sebastopol, California on October 9th at 3 p.m., a gathering at the Ojai Retreat Center on October 13th, and a visit to Triveni Ashram in Paulden, Arizona. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.